It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock MBA. Today's guest is Ash Avildsen. You may know him as the founder and boss man of Sumerian Records, who put out tons and tons of bands that you probably listen to, like Asking Alexandria and Periphery and, I don't know, a million other bands. But we are here to talk about his film projects, specifically his new series, Paradise City, which has Andy Biersack and... Ben Bruce and tons of other folks in it. It's out now on Prime Video, among other places. He also has two other feature films, American Satan, which is kind of the prequel to this. Uh, He did a comedy film, which is also pretty funny. And so really what I wanted to talk about here is the process of how exactly you do that. And more importantly, how he got himself into a mental state where he believed that it was possible, where he believed that the possibility space was such that you know, somebody who came up in the metalcore scene like a lot of us could make a movie like this, a TV series like this that goes on Amazon Prime. Super good conversation. We get into a lot of stuff, especially like the second half of this one. So stick around for that. Before we get into it, I wanted to mention a couple ways you can support the show if you are so inclined. Number one is you can share it on social media. Number two is you can buy some merch. We've got some coffee mugs. I put on a new deathcore shirt. That's pretty cool. Number three, you can support us on Patreon if you really, really like us. Patrons get every podcast a week early. There's a members-only private Discord server. I do Q&As. been doing some giveaways. There's a way to have me review your music or podcast or artwork or anything else you might want to get my eyes or ears on. You can do all of that at the links in the description. But first, before we get into that, let's do a little bit of Q&A. From Will Love, what books do you recommend for people wanting to look into the worlds of business slash investing? So the first thing I would say is that these are two different things. Starting a business and investing cash that you already have are separate things. They're related and sometimes they can be the same thing. But generally speaking, I would say that they are separate things. I'm going to focus on the investing part here because... I've talked quite a bit about how to start a business and that sort of thing, less about investing. So what I would do, there's two places that I would look. The first is uh, bogleheads.com. That is B-O-G-L-E heads.com. That's named after 
um, I think his name is John Bogle, the guy that started Vanguard and invented index funds and all that stuff. There's a forum there. There's a bunch of like how to get started guides on there, which are awesome. The other place I would look is investing on Reddit is r slash investing. That's the place that I would look. There's a lot of really good advice there. You know, Wall Street Bets is out there too. I would steer clear of Wall Street Bets, even though there is some good stuff there. There's Wall Street Bets is Wall Street Bets. Look on Reddit in investing. That's the place I would look. Quora is also good, but uh, Bogleheads and investing and also Ramit Sethi's book, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. It has kind of a crazy title, but it's a great book. So I would start there. And with that out of the way, let's get into this episode. Ash, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for uh, taking time out of your uh, movie making schedule to uh, to chat. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. So the kind of angle that I wanted to focus on here is, you know, I really like seeing people from the scene who show that the, I guess what I would say, possibility space is bigger than what a lot of us thought. You know, for example, like when Pete and Fall Out Boy showed us that hardcore kids could, you know, make Billboard number one records and make it to the big time and all that stuff. I think you've already done that once by, you know, starting Sumerian and doing what you've done with that. And you did it again, showing that you can make a movie or a TV show, which is pretty cool. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. I mean, ambition is, is a deadly disease, but it can also be very uh, fulfilling, too. So, yeah, it's awesome when yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of successful people that came from underground music that have then transcended it in a lot of ways. But you didn't leave it behind either. And I mean, I, it's OK when people do. But, you know, you're still you've, you're still definitely rooted in the music scene, too, which I think is a, a cool angle. Yeah, no, 100 percent. So I guess the first question I would have is like, you know, you've already made it in the music industry, which is hard enough. Why take on the film business, which seems like it might be even harder? I mean, the, the easiest way to truly describe it is just it allows me to fully be an artist again. I was a fucking vocalist in a progressive metalcore band. The vision when I was like, in high school and then dropping out of college to do music was to play in a band. It wasn't to be like a record exec or a label boss. I ended up being really good at that as, as was I with the booking agent business that I got out of once I started doing TV and film, but really it's just being a, you know, a writer and a director allows me to be fully creative again. And, um, you know, I can, I can write and direct better than I can sing and key. So it was an easy uh, decision. But you're still a, I mean, you are the producer of all your films, right? So the phrase producer in the movie business can mean a lot of different things. And mm -hmm. actually in the TV business, it's, it's different as well. So in film, a producer is different from like a line producer, uh, or UPM. Line producer is the one that's really getting their hands dirty and putting it altogether. A, a producer could be someone that finds the money. It could be someone that gets the script and the talent. It could be someone that has distribution relationships or a combination of all those things. It can literally be someone that like, hey, I'm going to connect you with this person and I want a producer credit because I'm connecting you guys. So it's so ambiguous, the term producer uh, in the movie business. So it can mean so many different things. And then in, in movies, executive producer is traditionally someone who brings in financing and they get an EP credit. And then in television, the irony is that executive producer of TV is actually the big dog credit. Like if you're an EP on a series, chances are you're like one of the main people running the entire show. You might even be the showrunner. Um, and then a producer credit in TV is usually someone who's, who's more focused on the day-to-day -day of getting the show made. 
um, from, you know, budgeting and, and different things like that. So the two kind of flip around. But I guess where I'm headed with that is like you're still involved in the business side of things, even though this is a creative outlet for you. You have to be. I'm not like some director's like, put me to set. Oh, get me there. Let me get to see. You know, I'm like. Do you have one of the chairs, the folding cloth chairs at least? Yeah, yeah, we got those. I'm not like 12 degrees removed from the business of it. No, we're still very, very involved in all that. Gotcha. Well, I want this to be about you, but of course I do want to talk about the show. What is the elevator pitch for Paradise City for anybody who may not be familiar with that? The rock and roll entourage with some sprinkle of the occult. Okay. I like that. That came out two weeks ago now? Yeah. Uh, March 25th in the US and, and UK. And then it's now going up a bunch of other countries. I think uh, Australia and Mexico are launching this weekend and then Germany and France the following week. And then you know, worldwide uh, in the coming, you know, in the coming next two weeks. So you've done, I think, two feature films. When when did you get the idea of doing a series, which I would imagine is a whole other beast compared to even a movie? Yeah, you know, originally I was going to do a series. It was written as as uh, When the Music's Over, which is an ode from a Doors lyric, which is a whole other conversation on uh, why we got taken down from Prime for a couple of days because of a copyright claim. But Originally, I, I had written the series. I was like, oh, I, I loved Entourage. And I was like, there's nothing for this in the modern day music business, specifically the rock scene. So I was like, I feel like this would be great. And then when I was learning how to be a screenwriter and reading all the, the writing books and kind of just trying to, to grow my craft in that regard, um, HBO came out with Vinyl and Showtime came out with Roadie. So I was like, oh, well, there that idea goes. Uh, I'll just watch as a fan. And those are two of the biggest and best networks with some of the most talented minds in TV and film behind those series. So I just assumed, well, that that ship sailed, but I'll just go try and make a little indie film and make it more kind of dark and, you know, a culty uh, and a more literal entourage type story. And so that's what made, made me pivot into American Satan. And then after that movie came out, and it found a nice little cult following and continues to to grow every month and you know generate money just like a very similar to how an album that find that, that reach reaches a certain level of like cruising altitude just kind of stays there and just becomes you know a source of revenue every week generating it that's what happened with american satan and then vinyl and roadies faltered after the first season they didn't continue so i go huh well, maybe I have a second chance at doing this now and I don't have to start from scratch because I already have built up, you know, an IP universe that I can pull from and continue to expand on. Um, and so that's made me pivot into doing Paradise City. Gotcha. How much of that kind of, uh, I guess, long tail would you say is due to like how authentic it is? I mean, you have so many people from the scene, like you look at the list of cameos. I don't even know all of them. There's like it's a mile long list of people. And like, it's very clear that this is a product of the scene rather than someone telling a story about it who's not part of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I'll say this. Yes, there's a level of authenticity because I've lived it my whole life and, and some of the casting is a reflection of, of that. But I'll say like stunt casting is the oldest trick in the book. And stunt casting right. for people to understand what that means is basically casting someone because you think, you know, oh, they have this following and then it's going to equate to this. Like that's not stunt casting usually doesn't actually work. I don't read it as that. I read it as more just like these are people who you, you know, know or have a relationship and just genuinely want them to be in the film because you think it would be cool to have them in it. 
Correct. Yeah, I cast based on who I think is going to be great for the character. And look, if that comes with social media followers, great. But I never lead with that. And that's where a lot of people get in trouble. And that's where I think, you know, when YouTube tried to make all those shows with the YouTubers, even they were scripted, they didn't really find audiences because most of those YouTube fans, they just wanted to see YouTubers doing YouTube videos. They didn't care to see them in like scripted productions. So I didn't really do any stunt casting for the sense of like, oh, this person's going <laughs> to equate to this. I was just like, I think that's going to be uh, authentic and they're going to they're going to bring the character to life in the right way. And like, you know, the inside joke with directors is like half the fucking gig is just casting it right. Like as a director, if you can cast it right. The chances of you succeeding are exponentially higher than even if you have a great script and great actors and, and great cinematographers and set design and production design and everything else. If the actors aren't believable playing the roles of the characters, then you're kind of screwed. So I think that's all helping. And it seems like in the first two weeks, people are binging the thing multiple times, which is something I've always in this world, I've always wanted to do is make stuff that you want to watch more than once as a fan. That's the stuff I loved as a kid, whether it's Dazed and Confused or the movie. Like I love watching indie films that made me want to rewatch it with my friends. So that seems to be working really well. But look, ultimately, you, you need to make characters and storylines that people give a shit about. Like the the cliff, the art of the cliffhanger in television is something I, I take super seriously. And I think, look, there's a million things I still would have done differently with Paradise City, seeing it finish and looking back the same way with American Satan. Like I'm constantly, I, I believe, getting better and better at the craft and I'm still, you know, very new to it. But the cliffhanger is like, I mean, that's, I don't know, in like a song, it's like your chorus or something. Like that's like what is going to get people to keep watching. And I think the, the challenge that Vinyl and Roadies have is that the storylines and the cliffhangers and the pilot didn't pull on the heartstrings enough or make people care enough that they didn't continue watching the series. And Vinyl actually, I thought, got really good in the, in the second half of the season, but most people never made it that far. And Roadies, you know, was a similar problem at the end of the first episode. Most people went, do I... Do I care to watch anymore? Both of those shows had fantastic actors and big budgets, big promo and all that stuff. So when those shows didn't, you know, quote unquote work or find big enough audiences, I don't think it was due to any lack of interest. I had a very big, you know, studio boss of a big streaming network that I met with before doing Paradise City that my last film was on for uh, American VOD. And he was like, we talked about vinyl and roadies. He's like, I don't think those shows failed for any lack of interest. Like people, people were paying attention to them. It just, it didn't connect. So I think that's what we've successfully done with Paradise City. I mean, look, we're, it's a small budget in the world of TV. The pilot of, of vinyl costed more than twice the amount of our entire first season. Are you able to disclose that number or at least like a ballpark? I'm just curious how expensive this stuff is. You know, it's a constant moving goalpost because it's like, let's sync this song. Let's do this in post. I can tell you it's incredibly low budget for scripted television. Like I said, I can say the whole season costed less than one half of the vinyl pilot budget. And they're in the, and the pilot was two hours and their individual budgets per episode also are more than what we spent on our entire first season. Again, though, that was a period piece. It's in the 70s. It's New York City. So, that, you know, there's other expenses there. Um, and obviously they had massive uh, producers and directors and writers and stuff, but yeah, I wouldn't want to share the, the exact amounts, but it, it's, it's a lot of money in music. It's not a lot of money in TV. Sure. People always ask me what, 
what the biggest difference is between the music business and the movie business. And they're actually incredibly similar. The biggest difference is basically two years on every timeline and two zeros on every line item. Um, but other than that, there's a lot in common. But yeah, I mean, it seems like people really are drawn into the storyline. And I think our pilot cliffhanger worked to get them to watch episode two. And then from there we went, and I originally wrote it just to be six episodes. And then once we started casting it and we were on set shooting it and we got Bella and some of these bigger names and the, the world, you know, the storylines kind of expanded. And I was like writing stuff on set to expand different storylines and character arcs and stuff. So it ended up being, it went from being six 30 minute episodes to now eight, you know, roughly around 40 minute episodes. So it was great. I mean, it's a lot, you know, I'm flattered that people give a shit to watch four and a half hours of my storytelling in a day or two. It's pretty, pretty awesome to hear. Four and a half hours of content. That's that polished. That's, a lot. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah. So how is this funded? I, I'm not an expert in this stuff. From what I understand, you know, Netflix will offer you money to just buy the thing. How does that work with Prime? And how does that come and like play a role in like your ability to do things like decide to make it extra episodes on the fly? So that was that didn't really change our shooting schedule too much. I mean, it did a little bit. We added some days, but also it's more content. It's more episodes, so there's more money to be made in that regard. I've taken a very, and you know, this is a very cavalierian kind of insane approach, but it's also how you can actually get things made and not wait, you know, years and years of your life for the phone to ring and someone to say, okay, go. I take a very record label approach to video content. You know, no different than making an album. You make the album, you make the music videos, you run the radio campaign, you do all the stuff, and then you distribute it all over the internet and you wait for all the money to come back. Uh, maybe it comes back in a week, maybe it comes back in five years. You don't know. It depends on who the artist is. Do they have a quote unquote hit or do they have something that's lightning in a bottle? So with Paradise City, there's merchandise and music components similar to just a real band. And then as far as monetizing the actual season, there's three main brackets of that. There's what's called AVOD, SVOD, and TVOD. So AVOD is advertisement VOD. So there's a lot of new places like Tubi and Pluto and Plex and all these places where you can download for free and watch if you sit through the ads. And those ads actually pay pretty good. Um, and this is a great way specifically for like Latin America and like places like Brazil and Mexico and Argentina and Chile where they're not, they're not really accustomed to paying for television. In fact, the iTunes store doesn't even have transactional TV in a lot of countries for that specific reason. So in those places, AVOD's great because they can just download something for free and watch and you can make money based on them watching ads, you know, the commercials in between the segments of the show. And then SVOD is, that's like what the Prime subscription setup. So if you have an Amazon Prime subscription, you can watch Paradise City for free and we make money um, similar to like Spotify, like how many times are they watching it? How long are they watching it for? And then there's a royalty rate there. And then TVOD, which is really the holy grail for a lot of indie film, is transactional. So that's like if you're buying the movie on iTunes or Google Play or Amazon Video also does that, Voodoo, Fandango Now. So those are the three like main ways that you that you monetize. You are the production company, so you own this and you're able, you've been talking about it as a show on Prime, but it's, a, it's potentially available in all these different outlets, each of which monetize in a different way. And you own the thing. And so it's kind of on you to recoup that. Yeah. So the idea is we recoup it similar to an album. However, you know, the dream is, is that based on us proving that the concept works and there's a fan base and people actually do give a shit about rock music, then someone would come and either say, hey, we want to 
we want to finance the second season and take territorial rights uh, based on different countries and broadcasters or someone like Prime or Netflix goes and says, we want it for the world, take it off everywhere and we have it exclusively. And it's interesting too, to see certain things that like, there are shows that have launched like on CW or even like Lifetime and like in different networks that then get a second window license on a bigger streamer and all of a sudden like explode. Like there's a show called All American that was on the CW and it didn't like, it wasn't that big in numbers. It's about a, um, a Compton kid who goes in and plays high school football. And, I remember that, yeah. And so when that thing went on Netflix, all of a sudden it was like, boom, and you would have thought it was a brand new show. I did, yeah. I, I didn't realize that wasn't a Netflix show. Yeah, that was just because they took a second window. The same thing happened with um, uh, Cobra Kai, although that was really big because they gave away the first two episodes for free on YouTube. And then there was another one, oh, Paramount. So did you see the Waco series on David Koresh? I didn't watch it, but I, I remember it. It's really good. So that was on Paramount. That was like their first big flagship show. And then not that many people had like Paramount Network yet. They rebranded it from Spike and it was on like linear cable. And then Netflix licensed Waco right when like the pandemic hit and everyone was sitting around and had already binged Tiger King and everyone started binging Waco. And it was like huge. It was like you, people thought it was like a new show on Netflix. So that's the fascinating thing about this world is that like these sec you know the stuff the whole idea of like a second window on an album is pretty foreign to think yeah it's like a thing but with tv and film it's completely a thing like it gets on a platform and all of a sudden it has a completely new life so that's always a fun part of this adventure is where it ends up next and a lot I and mean, that happens all the time with like indie film as well and then there's a bunch of stories I could tell from what my distributor said, but yeah. So it's, you know, the good, the other good news too, is that there's so much competition now in the space with Paramount just launched their own thing. And now there's Peacock and now there's, there's just so many places. The irony is that it kind of is going to feel like cable all over again. It's like, hey, <laughs> right. I just want one app and one place to watch everything. And what if there was a cable that carried all that? <laughs> That would be amazing. Someone should do that. Yeah, right. So you're talking about all these big names like Peacock and Hulu and Netflix and all that stuff. What made you believe that it was possible for you to get a foothold in this world? So there was a song that Journey wrote called Don't Stop Believing," and then the rest was history. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's it. You heard the song and you're like, all right, I'm in the movie business. That's it. Yeah. It's one thing to put out an album. I mean, that's, you know, maybe it's only because I understand that world. Like putting out an album is it's hard, but I think anybody could do that. But the stuff you're talking about, you know, dealing with these like household name brands and stuff like that feels just like very it feels like huge and intimidating to me. What made you flip the switch and be like, yeah, there's a world where I could make a show that ends up on one of these platforms? I, I think there's a lot of similarities to my journey with my record label. Like when I started Sumerian, everyone said I was insane because it was 2006. It was like before Spotify launched, physical sales were dwindling. Piracy was huge. iTunes was a thing and it was doing fine, but it was just, it was literally, you know, what that probably five year window there in the mid 2000s is probably considered like the worst time in the history of the music business. And so many people told me it was a terrible idea to do that and just focus on booking because artists will always have to tour and you can get your 10% and not have to put up money. And it really wasn't until the coronavirus uh, that all of a sudden people looked at touring and, and the, the record business differently because our faucets didn't get cut off. 
Um, obviously the touring, you know, what Napster did to the record business, COVID did to the touring business for a while, but it's very similar. Like I saw the opportunity in the shifting landscape and just believe that if you make great music and people know about it, you'll figure out a way to make money doing it. And so what's happening now with TV and film is, is very similar to what the record business went through back then. Everything's changing. Everybody has a smartphone and internet access. So the means of distribution are no longer like, I mean, when me and you were kids, if you weren't on like MTV or K-Rock or like a big label and a big tour, like, you know, how old are you? 42. Okay. So we're the same window. I'm 39. So like, I feel like we're so lucky our age because we got to experience the entire, like, I remember having to still go up to a TV and like change it manually before I had a remote <laughs> yeah. control. Like we got to experience all these different big, you know, uh, shifts in culture and technology. And so that's happening now again. And so of course, if you're on Netflix with a big budget behind you, a lot of people are going to see your, your creation. You can also get lost in the abyss depending on what your deal is there and how deep people are digging. So now I just look at it like with the power of the internet, if you make something that people like, and you have a me, if you have the means and the capability to, to make people aware of it, you can build something real. Of course, nothing's bigger than Netflix. And, and I, I, you know, I don't have anywhere near the, the, the resources that these big time companies do. However, you know, if you would have told me I was going to be, you know, signing the smashing pumpkins and working with, you know, Billie Eilish's publicist and all these big things on this, you know, album, when I started Sumerian, I would have been like, man, that sounds epic, maybe one day. And so that's kind of how we got to where, we're at now. I feel like with the relationships and the knowledge I have and the resources, like it's not delusional to think we can do more than be a traditional record label. And look, a lot of this I model after David Geffen. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the Inventing David Geffen doc. It was fucking awesome. I highly recommend it. I think PBS did it. It shows his journey from as an agent and then a label guy and a manager and then to getting into to movies. And it was actually risky business. He like identified Tom Cruise as this guy can be a big star. And a lot of people were like, wait, what? And, um, you know, I think that's, look, I, I really, I think more so on like the Johnny Depp 21 Jump Street side, but like, I believe Andy Biersack has a real career as an actor, uh, especially if he continues to own his craft. And I think he got a lot better from the movie to the show, um, taking acting lessons and really focusing on it. I mean, people, you know, people are very impressed with, because usually people don't think like a musician can pull it off. There's very few, you know, for every one Jared Leto, there's like a hundred. Fill in the blank. Yeah. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, Geffen's story is really cool because he was able to do both. And there's been other people as well. I mean, even like the, the Saturday Night Fever is a great story. There's a doc about that. The guy was like big into disco music as a record exec and Hollywood was like, nobody gives a shit about disco music and he's like oh, i got this guy tron travolta and this is what this is when a time where if you were a tv actor that's what you were you didn't get to do movies so the saturday night fever story is fucking really cool too because they're like you can't take a tv actor and make him a leading man in a box office movie about disco music nobody gives a shit and the label guy was like oh yeah check this out and then he did it and it blew up his his label and the movie was a hit you know so i i kind of look to those types of stories to um further my insanity to have you know optimism and taking big risks but i tell people all the time like trying to be a rock star and trying to be a movie star are two of the hardest 
businesses on the planet, you know? And it's the same thing on the behind the scenes too, whether you're a studio or a label. Like it. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station. It was a lifestyle. Cleveland is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Yeah! The Wrath of the Buzzard, WMMS, Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. It's hard. It's really, really hard. How do you find that line between like delusional and ambitious? I feel like I've held myself back in the past by saying, you know, that something I wanted to do wasn't realistic. And in hindsight, it's like, well, actually, I could have done that, but I just told myself I couldn't. Is that just not a gene that you have? Or how do you find that? sweet spot man like look I, I look at what you're doing and i would have done something very similar a long time ago and i probably in some regards probably should have in the sense that you put yourself out there as a personality and you've built your own brand and network and audience and you know that takes a lot of chutzpah you know what i mean that takes a lot of guts to do that and so you know in some way i mean maybe my has more financial risk but what you're doing is is also very you know, edgy and daring. And some people go, are you crazy? Like, you're going to put yourself out there like that as, as a public, you know, personality. Um, for me, like, I don't know, the, the older I get, the less I give a shit about what people think is what I found. I was much more of a hothead when I was younger, when it came to like, things getting 
like messed with, I, you know, I got attacked by a lot of older people in the business as a booking agent that would like try and steal my acts because I wasn't at a big agency. And there's always, you know, there's always that element in business and any business probably, but there's a lot of it in, in the entertainment business and the music business. But I don't know, man, like what else? We, I, I have a funny joke that I say with my friends. It's like when we have a crazy idea that we want to try, it's like, well, what else is there to do? You know? Right. Yeah, it's true. And another, and another big thing I believe in, in, in general with, you know, I've had employees, you know, that I kind of made, you know, for lack of a more poetic term that I fucking made in the business. Like, uh, and then they leave and they go someplace else and I go, Hey man, thanks for stopping by. You know, <laughs> I, I truly believe, look, we're all on our own journey. See, the problem is, and I've got, I've gotten wiser with this as I've gotten older that I try not to apply so much meaning to other people's decisions and how they affect right. me, we're kind of conditioned to like apply all this meaning. Well, but maybe it's not about you at all. It's not. Everyone's on their own journey. So I, I truly believe like if you have something better to do, go do that because that's what I would do. You know, mm-hmm. like it. Cool. Go do it. Awesome. Vince McMahon could call me tomorrow and go, hey, I want you to run the WWE and here's a $700 million budget to make fucking movies and TV shows. And I want you to be at the forefront of rock and roll and wrestling and do all this shit. But you got to stop like going into the studio with bands and making albums and worrying about all this stuff. I'd probably try and take all my artists and staff with me on the new adventure. But like, it would be hard to say no to that versus like, I'm going to make records and wait for, you know, Spotify and Google to like. And that's not because you don't like Ben Bruce. It's just because this opportunity was presented to you and Maybe you got to take it. Yeah. It's just like, look, we got, you know, we got, we, got, I believe in reincarnation, but as far as these bodies, like we have one life in this body and time is fleeting. It's only, you know, this is a line in the show that one of the, that Hobson's characters tells Johnny, it's like time is the only real currency we have. I really believe that. Like you can have a bunch of money in the bank. That's cool. But like, unless you are doing things with that money that you enjoy and sharing it with people and going on journeys together, like, it's just a fucking number in the bank, like, or, or in your, you know, your, your banking app or whatever. So, you know, I just, I've always kind of been, I've always kind of had that mentality of like, just take chances, you know? And I don't know, it got me this far. I, the weird thing is this, what I have noticed when I have a crazy idea, the more people that think it's bad, it's usually good. And the ideas I have that everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Those are the usually the ones that don't work out. It's really fucking bizarre. Like when I look back as like a snapshot of my career, I'm like the stuff that everyone was telling me to do wasn't actually very smart. And the shit that everyone's like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, again, it's not a thousand percent. Nobody bats a thousand. Yeah. But there is like a through line to that. That's pretty fucking weird. Um, Well, it's like the Henry Ford quote. If I asked him what they wanted, they'd tell me a faster horse. That's a good quote, yeah. People don't know. You know, on that note, you know, you're known as an intense guy. It sounds like you have, you know, maybe uh, changed somewhat uh, over the years. But, you know, people may not always like that. But I think that it's kind of necessary to be intense to do what you have done. I mean, Jeff Bezos is not a chill person. doesn't mean he's an asshole, but just I think intense and asshole are two different things. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think... um... Look, the people that would say that haven't built their own empire and had to claw their way through the jungles of parasites and predators and all the things that I've had to go through to get here. 
uh, it's easier when you've been able to rely on someone else's infrastructure and finances to make your living. Most other business owners that are like the CEOs of their company and the ones that built it, they would compare me to their experience and other people and probably say I'm actually pretty chill. But yeah, to like, you know, if we're using like a whiplash example, if I am I this like JK Simmons character to some of my artists, which they've compared me that to, but they're like, at first I was mad at you. And then I realized you made me go write the best song we've ever written. And, and what you said did come true. And, and, and then the prophecy kind of gets fulfilled. And then they're like, now we get why you're like that. And we love you. And we're grateful for it. Other artists get their feelings hurt so much that they go sign to different record labels because they're like, Ash is a fucking dick. And that's fine too. And then, and then they find out that the person who started that label is also an intense person because you don't start a label from nothing. <laughs> Correct. There's by, no <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like entrepreneurs are not chill people. You can't be. No. And listen, there are certain label owners that are like chill, but they're like, usually what there is, they're like collectors. They're not like ambitious. Like, oh, I'm going to go through this stuff. They're like, yeah, man, I'll give you this amount of money and put your record out and cool but it's more so like they're just having fun putting out albums it's not like we're gonna and that person's also less likely to like go to battle for you too then yeah the audacity and the intensity and the risk and the you know the chutzpah as someone who's recently been saying a lot um you know that's that's all part of it man like it's a brutal business dude it's (laughs) i mean is there a business that's not brutal you know what i mean i don't know man these uber eats drivers seem pretty chill (laughs) I order Uber Eats a lot because I'm up on a hill and I, I don't like dealing with the traffic. And um, I don't know. They seem chilling. I guess, you know, there's uh, there's this book called by the I think it's the founder of uh, WordPress. I forget. It's called uh, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't know that I agree with him. You know, I think if if you manage to build a company like WordPress being chill, that's great. But I think that's the exception to the rule. And the reason I bring that up is because I think people have a distorted idea of what it's going to take if they want to do something exceptional, but they don't want to have, you know, an exceptional level of intensity in their life. I think there's a lot of mismatch between what people's goals are and what their attitude and actions are. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I completely agree. I think there's, there's also like two types of businesses. There's like, and this is a phrase that gets used in general when when, whether you're building software or building, you know, art or whatever, there's like, there's lean back and lean forward, you know? So like me and you, what we do, it's like all lean forward until you fucking face plant, right? Like there's other businesses. Like if I'm a toll booth operator, I just literally lean back. I don't have to do anything. It all comes to me and I go, if I'm running, you know, the, if I, if I'm like, I always joke, with my friends are like, man, what's it like to just be the dude that like rents the jet skis? And he's always like, yo, what's up, man? All right, cool. So sign this. Here's your life. Best fucking have a good time. And then just like hang out on the beach and rent jet skis. And like, that's completely lean back. Like I always thought about like how cool it must be to own parking lots in like a big city. It is printing money. Just got to come up with the money for the asphalt. And after that, it's just collect the cash flows. Yes. But what did you have to do to get the $8 million for that parking lot? Correct. That's the hard part. Parking is so expensive in LA. I mean, we spent shooting Paradise City. We spent more money on parking in like West Hollywood than we even spent like getting iconic venues like the Roxy and the Whiskey and the Rainbow and stuff because it was just really uh it's a very expensive parking but no i mean and i think that's the thing with like lean back and lean forward when when you look at businesses like it's way easier to be chill if like 
you're the dude on the water slide. The toll booth collector. Yeah. yeah. Or like, hey, you got to wait 30 seconds. All right, they're down the water slide. Now you can go. I mean, that's... And look, maybe the joke's on us. Maybe they're way happier <laughs> and they live longer and they have less cortisol in their bodies and they're chilling, but... Um, I don't know how to be any other way, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing you mentioned in an interview that I thought was interesting about this, maybe you can explain, and you mentioned reincarnation. You said supernatural elements have guided and misguided my life ever since moving to Los Angeles and are also prevalent throughout the tale in in the movie or in the series. What was that about? So I, I believe there's a book called The Spontaneous Fulfillment of Desire by Deepak Chopra. And it's, it's basically about, there's really no coincidences. There's just messages and miracles. And I actually do, for the most part, 98% of the time, I really do believe that. And through numerology, as well as diction and words and signs and symbolism, um, there has been a lot of things that have directed my path, as well as very specific timing, um, I mean, this is like a whole other episode to go through. And I would need to like reference like some other people that could be like, yes, I witnessed that. Because a lot of the stuff, if I say it, I'm just going to sound like a complete lunatic. The good news is there's a lot of people that have witnessed these moments uh, specifically with numerology and timing of, of certain things happening. But let's say you went back in time 500 years and you tried to explain a telephone to somebody. They'd think you were crazy, too. Correct. But you're not crazy. You're just describing something you've seen that they haven't. Yep. And look, I really believe in cosmic consciousness and the Akashic records, which is, again, it's it's a deeper conversation. But there's a lot of like the, the one example in that book that's really good is it talks about how animals are connected on a conscious level to where like if you have, you know, 300 birds are flying in a flock and they all land on a tree at the same time. And then in one moment, they all get up. And they fly away from that tree and none of them bump into each other because they're all connected on that level with their consciousness. Or there's water buffalo that are like, there's a fucking literal million of them. Yeah. They can't even see each other from one end of the herd to the other. Correct. And if you, and with humans, it's like you have 300 people trying to scatter out of like a venue or a field. It's like everyone's bumping into each other because we're just not, we've fallen very far from, from grace, so to speak. So Another thing I've, I've experienced when I'm kind of tapping in to like, you know, the universe or whatever you want to call it, cosmic consciousness, like things just start happening. And when I really got into like my mid thirties, I started to realize like, you know, you hear that like the universe works in mysterious ways. See, I think the opposite. I actually think that the universe works in incredibly obvious ways. You just have to be turned on to the right channel and paying attention. And I've also learned that like, you know, people say, I mean, this is a big thing with like yogis and certain um, religions and, and spiritual guides, but they're like, you just have to surrender to the universe. And I, I used to be like, no, I'm ambitious. I'm a fighter. I don't surrender to anything. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. That's not what it means. It's like surrendering doesn't mean giving up or losing ambition. It's more of like figuring out how to flow with riding the wave. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, riding the yeah. wave. And the more I've kind of got into that rhythm, I'm like, wait, why is this so hard? Hmm. Maybe it's so hard because I'm supposed to be on this stream instead of that stream. And then all of a sudden I go down that stream and something amazing happens. I mean, it just literally happened with Paradise City. Like the show gets pulled down 
for, for a couple of days, I'm so distraught and devastated. And then I'm like, you know what, this is completely out of my hands. All I can do is, is go through the process of, of fixing the issue. However, in that time, like it made all these kids go and, and, and buy it on their own without us even doing like some big call to action. They all went, like, I, I, I came out of the studio and my VP was like, dude, did you see like, it's number one on iTunes. I go, what? Like drama? He's like, no, all genres. And like, I almost got fucking teary eyed. I was like, this is, I was so devastated by what happened. And then I, as soon as I was like, I can't control everything. It, that ended up being the catalyst that what got us from like number two or three when the show was already out to that happening. And then that's like another awesome accolade to have in our pitch deck. And when we're talking to other, you know, platforms and investors are like, look, this went number one and beating out all these other shows. And so there's always going to be attrition with anything you do besides, you know, laying on the couch. I don't know. Like you said, I just try to ride the wave man, and figure it out. I know that sounds like so like hippy dippy, but it really is a real thing. Like there's so many of these things that my mom told me she was real into like Yogananda and all this stuff when I was a kid. And I thought it was so stupid when she told me when I was like 11 years old or something. And then as I get older, uh, I realized that she was right and they were right. And all that like dumb hippie stuff I hated when I was a kid turns out to be pretty valuable. Yeah. And it's like you, you don't have a choice anyway. Like you can try to push against the river if you want, but it's a river. You can't. You know, you have to go with the flow. Yeah. Yeah. I think people get, they get confused by what that means. Cause they think that means just be like passive. It's like, no, it doesn't mean be passive. You should be surfers aren't passive. Yeah. They're very active. There you go. That's a great analogy, but they're not trying to push the wave in the other direction. Correct. Yeah. You know, and the more you understand how to ride the wave, the better a surfer you are. And I guess that's how I've started to try to think about it, you know? Which, you know, people might say that this is the sort of thing that dumb old guys say, and maybe it is, I don't know, but I've, I've found it very helpful, especially, you know, in chaotic kind of industries and projects and stuff where you just, the idea of trying to control everything is fiction anyway. Yep. Yeah. How do you find that balance in the moment when shit goes wrong and you get your, your kind of primate brain kicks in of like, I must control this, I have to fight this. But then, you know, and, and you don't want to give up. But on the other hand, you you understand that maybe this is something you can't control. What What's the self-talk when you're kind of figuring out how to navigate those those moments where you realize the wave may have take you in an unexpected direction? I mean, I you know, one one funny phrase, like none of this shit's life threatening unless you let it be. I am always in this battle, but it, it, it was much worse in my early 30s than it now is in my late 30s. But like, it's really easy to like work yourself up from worldly stress, like stuff that like, specifically like first world problems, you know what I mean? Like my band doesn't have enough streams. Yeah, it's like, I mean. You got water. Yeah, so I try to remember that. And the other thing too is like, you know, this shit's supposed to be fun. Like as soon as it's not fun, what the fuck are we doing? It doesn't mean it can't be hard work and there's gonna be stressful times, you know, all the time. But like at its core, like it's still, has to be fun. And as soon as like, it's not fun, you've lost the plot. And that's the same thing with like, being in a band, working with a band as their label or whatever capacity, like, obviously, every, every, every person's scenario is different. So some people may not be able to stop the torture. Um, because it's their only way to, to pay their rent or their mortgage. But you know, I've been fortunate enough with decisions I've made that like, I don't have to 
you know, I'm going to kill myself doing any of this stuff. You know, there was a time when I was building the empire that I did, you know, but now I'm at a point to where I just want to be excited about anything I'm working on, whether it's signing a new band, signing a legacy act, um, discovering something, working on a show, a movie, a documentary, fucking, you know, investing in a drink or a product or whatever. It's just, it still has to have some level of, of fun. And when you lose that, then you really get to ask what that, what's the point of all this, you know? Wise words. I've taken up enough of your time, so I'll let you go. Uh, any parting words of wisdom or plugs or anything else you want to leave the folks with? Yeah, what's the target demo of, of your show? Do you have any of that type of... Mm-hmm. Dudes around 30. Okay, yeah. So that's a very pivotal um, age, and it's kind of really when you start trying to be like, am I on the right path or not? So to all my 30 year olds or late twenties or early thirties that are figuring it out, like, I guess the words of wisdom to me, well, one, don't, don't let life pass you by on a personal level because you're working a lot. And if you do do that, make sure that you're getting your pound of flesh in the work. Uh, so you're not broke and lonely. Uh, <laughs> so make sure you're at least executing one of those two things. Good. Either have a good business or have a good family. And ideally you want to have both. And then the other thing is make, you know, figure out what you're good at and, and really lean forward into it and hope that you don't face plan. And there is a way to have fun and also make money. Um, and it doesn't mean it's not hard and it's not going to be stressful, but um, that's really, you know, if you're, if you're trying to be an entrepreneur or in any way doing something that's outside of the societal norms, figure out that balance of, of what you're good at and, and what you enjoy doing. And, you know, hopefully the universe will, will then guide you into a river of success. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me, Finn. It's great to meet you. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.